for me, the lesson from the uh, Louis Riel's provisional government is what of inclusion. Um, the Métis, uh, you know, I'm very proud of my family's background as Métis and um, proud to be, uh, so I'm, I'm told, uh, the first Indigenous leader of a major Canadian city. Looking back at the governance uh, of the provisional government and um, what it stood for, it, my reading of history is is that it was an inclusive government. It was one that, that really set out to, to have a province in which you know, everyone was proud to call this place home. And uh, that continues to be something that people of all backgrounds, uh, whether they're Métis, Indigenous or not, I think in Winnipeg and in Manitoba continue to strive for. And it's something that in terms of uh, governance as a country, we continue to to struggle and, and make strides towards in terms of the, you know, the four-sided table that uh, we all aspire to uh, to have. This is Winnipeg, Manitoba Mayor Brian Bowman. With the largest urban Indigenous population in Canada, Winnipeg is central to the project of truth and reconciliation. And I wanted to understand what that looked like from Mayor Bowman's perspective. I think that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action or, you know, next to climate change are arguably the single greatest challenge for our generation of whether or not we're going we're gonna to deliver on those calls to action or not. And I think the verdict is still out for Canadians, whether we are truly in a meaningful way going to respond to those calls to action and the missing and murdered Indigenous women calls to justice, whether or not we are going to respond in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, we're leading a lot of things here in Winnipeg. Uh, Canadian cities are stepping up, provinces and the federal government in different ways. But when I look at having the largest Indigenous community of a major Canadian city, I see that as a source of pride, but I also see it as a, as a source of opportunity because so much of the wisdom we need resides in our Indigenous people and our elders in the community. And they, they, they have the ability to, to show us all um, the kind of that path to reconciliation and that journey that we're on is being um, influenced significantly by our Indigenous people. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is City Insight, Canada's constitutional city crisis. In this series, we'll explore the sometimes fraught relationship our local governments have with their provincial and federal counterparts, and explain ways of reimagining that relationship. And when you speak of the challenge of reconciliation, what does the challenge look like in Winnipeg specifically? Well, one of the challenges is just understanding how you operationalized reconciliation. Uh, I think if you ask most Canadians, do you uh, want to respond in a positive way to the truth and reconciliation calls to action? Do you want to respond to reconciliation? Uh, the, the short answer is often yes. The challenge is many people say, I don't know where to start. Right. Like, I want to make the country better. I think a lot of Canadians are, are learning about residential schools, as one example, for the first time. You know, I, I, I grew up in Winnipeg. I'm Indigenous. I didn't know about residential schools until I was in university. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's outrageous in a country as as learned as Canada that 
a major part of our history has not been uh, widely taught, uh, and it's it's becoming taught. So I think that, you know, we've brought in the Winnipeg Indigenous Accord as a means to create that ripple effect of education and action in the community. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of other uh, things that I, I could go into that we've been doing, but it really comes down to that that challenge of education and then action that needs to result from it. And uh, good faith, sincere way, many Canadians, ju- you know, just don't know where to start. And so that's where I think elected officials have a role to play is, is providing that roadmap in providing that uh, those, those options for businesses and not for profit and individual Canadians. And that's why in our case in Winnipeg, the indigenous accord is a major part of that work. Uh, in addition to some of the other things we've been working on. Yeah, speaking to that uh, accord, can you uh, unpack that for listeners? It's the answer to the question when organizations say, I want to help support reconciliation, but I don't know where to start. Right. Today, what the Indigenous Accord is, is uh, it's a commitment that signatories make to our community and to each other that they are going to respond to the calls to action. It's a non-prescriptive document. And so by signing it, you're committing to report annually through a city website on what actions an organization intends to take and how successful you you were in the previous year. It's not conducted in a way that the city judges those actions. It's actually just done to hold us all accountable to for that public scrutiny. Um, we also facilitate all partner gatherings throughout the year where we bring in elders and others that can help educate the frontline personnel of respective organizations and kind of empower them because often they're working on the side of their desk in organizations and they're just trying to do their best. So we want everybody who's, who's engaged in this exercise to just learn from each other. And so it's been a very positive exercise where um, roughly 200 organizations have signed on now. Um, you know, we're going to continue to work to, to have folks signing, uh, signing on, Join us in this conversation. We'll do what we can to walk you through what you should consider as an organization, but ultimately what an organization chooses to act on is at their discretion. As well, you've established a a human rights committee at the local level. Yeah, the human rights committee, you know, my focus in my first term was, was definitely on reconciliation, but as the mandate evolved, what I, I increasingly started seeing reconciliation through a human rights lens. And because ultimately we're, we are just talking about basic human rights for Canadians. Right. And, you know, we're really blessed to have the Canadian Museum for Human Rights reside in Winnipeg. And the cluster of human rights, academia, study, and, and policymakers that's emerging in Winnipeg, I, I felt we need to better tap in and learn from them. And so we created the first what we understand is the first ever human rights committee of council in Canada. And, uh, you know, we've been working on a number of things, whether it's newcomer welcome and inclusion policies, whether it's uh, anti-oppression training and, and other actions to, to build a more inclusive city. But I do, I, I personally am increasingly seeing the reconciliation work under that umbrella of human rights work, because at the end of the day, the reconciliation work is just about protecting Canadians human rights and it's another way in which I'm trying to connect with Winnipeggers who may not see reconciliation as important as it should be for them I think uh, there are some Canadians who have 
perhaps a better understanding of human rights as it relates to them. And seeing it through that human rights lens can help act as a bridge of understanding between non-Indigenous and Indigenous Canadians. That's one of the reasons why I'm increasingly framing it through a, a human rights lens. And uh, obviously something like reconciliation is, is a project that requires every level of government uh, working in tandem, preferably. So what can Winnipeg use from the other levels of government, provincial, federal? Uh, what has the relationship been like in trying to address that? And, and what do you hope to see? Uh, the, the most active participant with our reconciliation efforts has been, quite frankly, the federal government. They've really set the tone in Canada, and they've also signaled uh, through the highest officials, notably the prime minister, that reconciliation matters to the future of our country. And so, you know, the, the engagement hasn't been quite as robust with our provincial government, but... Uh, it's certainly something that I know all levels of government have have taken some some measures. You know, our, what we've been trying to do is, you know, I, I I'd like Winnipeg to increasingly be seen as a leader in human rights protection and promotion, but also in in reconciliation work. And uh, something that Winnipeg does have, you know, it's different for every Canadian municipality, but you do have the City of Winnipeg Charter, which uh, gives the city uh, certain powers to do certain things uh, like uh, I imagine uh, establishing a human rights committee. Yep. Is that an aid in, in something like uh, addressing the needs of uh, the reconciliation project? I think, I mean, when it comes to reconciliation and human rights work, I think councils, regardless what their governance structure, if there's a will, there's a way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at Canada's big city mayors, we've got some just incredible mayors in Canada that are committed to reconciliation, to, to human rights protection and promotion I'm really proud to to serve alongside Canada's big city mayors. I mean, you, you look at them to a person. This is a group of progressive and responsible leaders. And in many ways, they've really been leading the way for Canadians. You know, the majority of Canadians live in Canada's big cities. And so these issues impact Canada's big city mayors you know, in a significant way, in addition to those that live in smaller centers and in rural Canada as well. Um, you know, everybody's got a role to play, but they're, they're definitely the, the challenges and the opportunities are, are very acute in Canada's big cities. Right. Uh, mentioning the big city mayors, uh, the chair of the big city mayors, uh, committee, uh, your, your colleague, uh, mayor Don Iveson of Edmonton, he described being a Canadian mayor, uh, as sometimes like sitting at the kids table. And in terms of trying to address important things like truth and reconciliation and human rights uh, on, on a municipal level, I wonder if if you've ever felt like you you desired a little more autonomy. If if there was some you know levers that you wish you could pull that you you think might make a difference, and and you just don't have those tools in the toolbox as as it stands, uh, sort of constitutionally. <laughs> yeah, I only feel that every single day in office. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You know, what I would say is the constitutional division of powers and the jurisdictional framework for Canada's municipalities is antiquated. And I mean, you look at the primary means that we even collect revenues is from property taxes, something that stems from feudal times. Right. There's a reason why other levels of government have long abandoned property taxes as the primary means of revenue collection. And so you'll get a lot of talk at, uh, at the provincial levels about how important municipalities are. But 
there has not been any province that has really taken strong, decisive measures to empower Canada's municipalities to truly meet the the demands of of their population through giving them the tools necessary to get the job done. So, I mean, if you were building a car, it would be like, you know, not putting the engine or the wheels or the seats in, but then saying, okay, go, go ride in the Indy 500. I mean, you know, we're on the front lines of the challenges that Canadians face, but the jurisdiction and the resources are simply nowhere in the realm of appropriate to address the challenges that we have. I actually am not a huge proponent for more money. I actually think it's just how we how we collect it. Do we collect it in smart ways that create the debates on the floors of council that we want to have about job creation and things like that that we should be doing a lot more of? But then also having the real substantive tools to address the challenges that that we have. So yeah, there's a there's a lot more work that has to happen there and you do need provincial we are creatures of statute of provincial jurisdiction and so it rests primarily on the shoulders of provincial premiers to uh, to make the appropriate changes so that we can get the outcomes that we all desire both provincial leaders and municipal leaders. And what do you think it will take to get provincial governments uh, on side on the side of municipality to sort of share jurisdiction and uh, be a partner at, at a local level? You you have to have a majority of premiers that care less about ribbon cutting and announceables about funding support to municipalities and more interested in outcomes. Because if you're really interested in outcomes, then you change the framework to allow those outcomes to uh, to be achieved. But you know that that's part of the challenge. Is uh, you know right now you know there's funding grants that that flow to Canada's big cities. Uh, they make for great announcements, but. Uh, to me, it's kind of an admission that the funding model isn't working. If a level of government can't deal with the the demands of, of its population through the tools that they have when they're reliant upon other levels of government, to me, that's an admission of of uh, a need to, to, to change some things. Well, Mayor Bowman, I want to thank you for taking the time. Can I give you the final word? You know, I, I would just say when it comes to, to reconciliation, you know, this is something that all Canadians have a role to play, whether you're in government or not, whether you're in a municipal, provincial, or federal government, you're in a school board, uh, whether you're an Indigenous leader or you're non-Indigenous. It, it is something that there is a role for us all to play. The challenge is finding your means of of acting on those calls to actions as a Canadian. And I'm inspired every day by the resilience and the strength of our Indigenous community here in Winnipeg and from coast to coast to coast. I'm also inspired by the increasing willingness of non-Indigenous Canadians to step up and find ways to build bridges with with our Indigenous community. And so it took, you know, it was seven generations of residential schools. It is going to take multiple generations to undo the harm, but I'm increasingly confident that we will rise to that challenge. It, it is going to require an ongoing focus and commitment, unlike anything else we've seen in, in our nation's history. And uh, that's where these conversations are incredibly important to make sure that we're not patting ourselves on the back, thinking the job is done when it, it clearly isn't. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, the city unanimously passed an Indigenous-led downtown safety pilot run by the Saskatoon Tribal Council. 
Like many cities in Canada, especially during the pandemic, Saskatoon is trying to address issues of homelessness, mental health, and addictions. Mayor Charlie Clark says the city is trying to address these issues while repairing the trauma caused by Canada's colonial past. Yeah, well, in my first term as mayor and and in some of my work as a city councillor, I um, have been doing a lot of work to try and figure out what do we need to do to turn around the experience and cycles of addictions and homelessness and youth incarceration that we're seeing in our city and and that are leading to far too many families and uh, young people ending up in jail instead of graduating from high school and that are leading to people who are struggling with addictions going, you know, through a cycle of, of getting into housing and then losing housing and then ending up on the street and, and, and cycles of, of violence as well. And we know this is rooted in, you know, a long time history of, of colonial thinking and the impacts of trauma and residential schools and all of these types of things. The trick is how do you rebuild a path uh, that that um, breaks those cycles and changes the way we work with people and, and changes those outcomes. And we've started to do it with some initiatives where we're looking at Indigenous-led programming and services where the um, systems that have been in place and have been operated by the government or organizations that are, you know, are still sort of based in the Western way of thinking and that don't necessarily incorporate or understand the, the indigenous worldview have fallen short. And and I think a huge, because so many of the people that are on the streets and are facing these challenges in our community are indigenous, having programs and initiatives that um, are led by indigenous people are informed by indigenous worldviews with people who have the relationships and the networks and the understanding of how to reach people and how to bring people back who are lost to me, that's how we start to break these cycles. And so I'm focused on figuring out how to help facilitate that as a mayor. Right. I think one of those programs uh, last term, the creation of uh, Sawahaitoten, an Indigenous-led downtown safety pilot, was unanimously passed by council. I was hoping you could speak a little to that. And where is that at in, in the process of being created? Yeah, the Sawahitoten initiative, which is a Cree word that speaks, that is about acknowledging the humanity of each person and creating a relationship of, uh, where, where we honor the humanity of one another, uh, in both directions. And this was a name that was, uh, provided by elders in our community when asked how to name a project like this. And in a way, the name is important because it helps us start to think differently. So the, the Sawahitoten project is underway. There was $200,000 provided, 100000 from the city and 100000 from the province to support the tribal council to build this program, which is about proactively going out to where people are at on the street and supporting those people to figure out what they need, where they're at, what their needs are, how to get them into housing and to stay in housing and then uh, understand where the barriers that they're facing are in the system or where where the cycles end up getting broken too in terms of what happens and as people end up so often getting into housing and then back out. And so it's a pilot project because we're wanting to learn what this teaches us. Mm-hmm. But by having it led by the tribal council 
and informed by elders, what's really interesting about what's coming out of it, for example, is that the, the way that the Sawaitoten staff are framing this is they don't call the people who are homeless and on the streets clients or participants or, you know, um, this uh, more um, generic name. They call them relatives. Right. Wakomagan is the is the term that they use, and so each person that's out there, they talk about what do our relatives need uh, to get help, not what do these participants need. And when I've read some of the reporting on this, you know, just the way and the framing and the understanding of who people are, and this grounded in this idea that we need to really think about the the humanity of these people, and that that, that they need support to get on a journey that's going to get them to a better place is having a, a real impact. So it's it's still underway as a pilot project. It's it's trying to uh, wedge into a system that has been very well established. So there's lots of challenges along the way, but there's also been some tremendous partnerships that have developed out of the Sawaito 10 project and some, some tremendous collaboration with many organizations. There's many organizations in Saskatoon who understand that we need to change and do things differently and are welcoming the work of, of an, a more Indigenous-led, Indigenous framework to, to try and do this work. It, so it's underway, but it's still very much in the works to, uh, to become established. I was hoping you could characterize the city's relationship with the higher orders of government in addressing these systemic barriers to indigenous people, you know, the federal, provincial. Yeah, I mean, the one of the biggest challenges is that um, what we have right now is it, within the city, a community of people who see and understand and are tracking the way these issues are playing out on the streets every day. And that, that includes the organizations that are trying to help people um, who are struggling. That includes businesses in our downtown who are challenged by, you know, an increasing number of homeless people and in some cases more aggressive situations in our downtown because of crystal meth and the impact that that's having. Um, our city police who are trying to navigate and work with people because as you've probably heard from Mayor Bowman, you know, at the same time as these issues around homelessness have been challenging us for a long time, when we now throw in some of these really destructive drugs like crystal meth and so on, uh, it gets even worse. Mm -hmm. And we are at the local level watching how these things play out. The provincial and federal governments are more removed. They're operating out of Regina, uh, in the case of the provincial government or Ottawa, um, have, have mostly, you know, most of the responsibility for the policies and in many cases the funding and the, and also the jurisdiction for homelessness, housing, you know, addictions, mental health, all these things. But they're not actually, you know, in the community to see the interconnected ways these things play out. And so when you ask what the relationship is, what we're, we're really been trying to do is to get a coordinated approach where we actually have the provincial government, especially coming to the table with us and saying, here's what's playing out on our streets. This is what we're seeing. And in, in many cases, the, the, how the actual policies are playing out to either support people to succeed or, or to perpetuate cycles that are not working and, uh, and work together to, to figure out what it's going to take to solve this. And the thing that strikes me the most is that the, the further you are away from, from the ground level, how things are playing out, the harder it is or the more abstract 
um, your understanding of, of, uh, of what's needed to address that is. And uh, I think this is one of our biggest challenges at the city level right now. So it sounds to me like you're trying to strengthen relationships with the other orders of government. I wonder as well, though, in your opinion, would anything be served if, if the city of Saskatoon had a little more political autonomy or even just financial autonomy in, in dealing with these barriers and, and as well as, you know, the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee? Yes, certainly. I mean, the, we, we would like to have more capacity and resources to, to be able to directly, you know, develop some of the solutions because I just think that the, at the city level, as I said, we're the closest to the ground to address them. The trick is that what we're, we also are walking this fine line that we don't want to start to become the healthcare providers or the, housing providers or, or to take on a lot of those jurisdictions that that are not municipal. And, and that's actually been one of the biggest tensions is that we see the challenges, we know the challenges, we, we don't want to see them continue on in terms of the impacts of homelessness and addictions and all these things. But the, the more we start to solve the problem, the more it can uh, lead to other levels of government saying, okay, well, we don't have to worry about it as much because the cities are dealing with it. And we just don't have either the uh, policy or financial capacity to take those on. So <laughs> there's a fine line there. I think a partnership is still the best way to go. But there are certainly areas where I think there's a, there would be a benefit to having cities have more autonomy or, or, uh, and more fiscal capacity to apply solutions to these situations because of our proximity to the issues. And, uh, when we're speaking of tension, uh, I wanted to ask the city of Saskatoon in the last, you know, 10 years at least, it, it elects a different kind of government, I think, than the province at large does. And, and I'm wondering if there's tension there in, in navigating these priorities. Yeah, I mean, we uh, have a community that is certainly wanting to move forward and, and to understands that we need to take a progressive and inclusive approach to our future, you know, that uh, in order to be successful as a community, we need to, to be inclusive. We need to uh, start to address uh, some of the challenges of, of climate change. And, uh, and so, so these are all definitely aspects of my mandate and, and what I've been elected on. I've maintained and worked to maintain a pretty strong relationship with the provincial government and, and different ministers along the way and the premier in, or, in order to make sure that we're finding where that common ground is between what the mandate of the province is and what the mandate of the city is. We are running into some challenges with, uh, certainly with regards to how some of these uh, issues I've been talking about are dealt with because I am concerned that uh, some of the policies and practices and the way that funding for organizations or, or um, programs for uh, housing, homelessness and addictions are, are just not providing the results that uh, the community deserves. But we had uh, some very good engagement with the Ministry of Social Services in the fall of last year and that they have been a partner on on the uh, Sawi Toten project, and we're going to continue to try and work to build that. I, I believe, even if I am perhaps more on the progressive side and the provincial government has been elected on more of a conservative mandate, there is definitely a lot of common ground in, in terms of um, the overall benefit of having less people on the streets, 
having less crime in our in our community that's been driven by uh, addictions and and um, and people who are who are struggling and falling through the cracks in the system. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have had a high level of engagement of the business community that's increasingly recognizing that the only way we're going to address these issues is by having systems that better support people to succeed. We cannot police our way out of this system or we can't put in, you know, regulations and bylaws that somehow sweep, you know, uh, poor people under the rug, uh, that none of those things are effective uh, or humane. And we need to come up with systems that uh, actually get people uh, supported to, uh, to, to get off the streets and into housing. Well, Mayor Clark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. All right. The one other thing that I do want to mention with regards to reconciliation is that mm-hmm. another big issue that we're facing as a nation is that uh, there's a lot of interjurisdictional s- sort of um, sometimes fighting around urban First Nations populations and, you know, a lot of federal programs that support First Nations who are on reserve uh, but don't necessarily apply to um, the First Nations who are in cities. Mm-hmm. And the province often doesn't want to provide support to First Nations who are in cities because they say it's federal jurisdiction. But the challenges that arise, again, happen on the streets of cities, uh, you know, in the neighborhoods, in the schools, in the jails, and, you know, in where, where people are uh, are on a path that's not working, that's not getting the support, that's perpetuating some of these old cycles. So we're really also wanting to look and work at how do we create a system where we're all working together. We're not dealing with these jurisdictional squabbles, but that um, in most cases, at least 50% of the First Nations populations of any one community are in cities uh, looking for opportunity and education and need to be, you know, the, the, we need to put an end to the jurisdictional squabbling over whose responsibility is it to ensure that the right supports are in place and just come up with programs that do that. And we've been working with the Saskatoon Tribal Council very closely on um, figuring out how to help further those goals as well. In the Northwest Territories, the relationship between a city like Yellowknife and its higher orders of government is a bit different than cities and towns under a provincial jurisdiction. Yellowknife Mayor Rebecca Alti helps explain what it's like governing a city under a territorial government in an otherwise sparsely populated region, as well as the importance of recognizing Indigenous community sovereignty and land claims. First off, I want to acknowledge that I'm on Chief Draghi's territory, which is home of the Yellowknife's Dene First Nation. Mm-hmm. And so here in Yellowknife, we're part of the Northwest Territories, and the Northwest Territories and all the territories in Canada aren't actually recognized in the Constitution. So they are a creature of the federal government. So we're kind of a, a creature of a creature. Right. But just like municipalities across Canada, we get our authority delegated from the territorial government through legislation. Right. Uh, and what, what would you describe as Yellowknife's sort of traditional relationship to the territorial government? Probably a lot like down south where, you know, we have to go and ask mom and dad, um, hey, we created this community plan or this is our zoning bylaw and do you approve it? And they review it and say, yep, this is good. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we've matured a lot over the years and haven't quite got that legislative maturity yet. 
the thing I'm, when I talk to the territorial government about considering a, a specific city of Yellowknife Act, because there's 33 communities in the Northwest Territories, Yellowknife's the capital, and we have half the population here. We're 20,000, and the next biggest town is 5,000. So there's quite a, a range, and you know, there's communities of 70 people. So stuff that the city of Yellowknife is interested in doing isn't necessarily relevant to to other cities. So trying to start those discussions with the territorial government about how, just like the territorial government has had authority devolved to them from the federal government over the years with the most recent in 2015, where the federal government devolved land administration to the territorial government, Mm -hmm. we're urging the the territorial government to consider the same, devolve some more um, jurisdiction and authority to the municipality. Again, we're not looking to get into health or education, but the the territorial government owns most of the, the vacant land in Yellowknife. Right. So anytime that we want to develop a new subdivision, we have to go to the territorial government and ask, hey, can you transfer this land to us? And they say, why do you need it? Well, we want to build more houses because we need more houses. And it's this long, complicated, bureaucratic process. And if it's in the case of business, you know, like we need more more space for businesses to develop. It takes two years to get this land evolved. Business is already left. So trying to really streamline the process so that we don't hamper development. Right. So in, in the case of Yellowknife, it sounds like a, a little bit more independence would just mean the ability to not miss out on certain opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we've um, had a, a land request because uh, a business wants to bid on a contract and they need this this piece of land so that they can expand their operation. And we've had the the request to transfer the land in for the past year. And so this business is just kind of tapping their feet, waiting for the opportunity to grow. And particularly in the time of COVID, why are we stopping development when there's businesses interested in growing? And you, you mentioned that uh, Yellowknife is, is on traditional Indigenous territory. The Northwest Territories acknowledges uh, a number of Indigenous governments and I'm interested in the sort of interplay between municipal government, the territorial government, and, and then these indigenous governments as well. Yeah, and so we, we have both settled and unsettled land claims and self-government agreements. So here in Yellowknife, it's a Quecho territory, and so they're still in the process of settling their, their land claim and self-government agreement with the federal government. So it does provide a bit of uncertainty right now with some land in the city of Yellowknife. But um, for our relationship, we really see it as four levels of government working together. Mm-hmm. And we we have a, a memorandum of understanding with the Yellowknife's Dene First Nation to be able to outline how our relationship will, you know, when we'll meet and items that we'll discuss. And it's really improved a lot in the past few years from having a bit more structure to, to our relationship. So one of the projects or some of the projects that we've recently done is revising our community boundary because currently one of um, the Yellowknives Dene First Nation communities what is in our boundary. And so we're looking to redraw the line to have their two communities within their same boundary. So we worked together on that and then presented that to the territorial government to say, hey, will you approve our, our community boundary change? So that process is still with the territorial government waiting approval, but, um, you know, working together on that really grew 
when we did our community plan was making sure that Dale and I have Dene weighed in on how the community would grow and, and our policy principles around that. As well, we've been working on a, a joint economic development strategy. And I think the the key thing with the, the MOU and everything we work on is recognizing that we're two distinct governments. And so the municipality being a, a creature of the territorial government and the Yellowknife's Dene First Nation being a nation. So we have different authorities and, and jurisdictions. And so when we're, we're working together, it's really recognizing that and then finding what are common levers that we can pull. So in regards to the economic development strategy, the city of Yellowknife doesn't have any education or skill development responsibilities, but the YKDFN do. So something around that wouldn't be included in our joint one, but would be included in their their own personal one. So yeah, it's a, a lot of conversations and making sure that we're we're working together on everything that we can. Right. And you mentioned the the sort of looking at redrawing the borders of Yellowknife and, and who has responsibility for what. Can you sort of unpack that for listeners? One of the Yellowknife's Dene First Nation communities was in the boundary of Yellowknife. And so it was about redrawing the boundary so that the the Yellowknife's Dene First Nation community was in the same, because their other community is just across the lake from from Yellowknife. So it was about redrawing the boundary so the community of Dilo is no longer in the city of Yellowknife's boundary. It's in the like the Yellowknife's Dene First Nation boundary. Because mm-hmm. uh, right now, you know, when Dilo's in the city of Yellowknife's boundary, it means the city's responsible for paving and, and water and sewer and Dilo residents have to be in compliance with all the city's bylaws. Whereas when it's no longer in the community boundary, they'll be responsible for providing municipal services and, and having their own bylaws for their own residents. So municipal autonomy for that community. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's kind of funny in that they do have a, a chief in council who is responsible for, for that community. And so I guess, you know, one of the ways that we've been working together over the years is in the zoning bylaw, when it comes to the community of DLO, the thing that we've written in is any changes to this zone would be reviewed and approved by chief and council before being made. But yeah, it's definitely about giving DLO chief and council full autonomy of their community. I think that's really essential because with this project, you know, talking about municipal autonomy and the case for it and what needs to change, does there need to be something in the charter, you know, what have you. The ideas kind of break down a little when you start to recognize that so many of our cities were built on occupied land and uh, that they are sites of still sometimes very upsetting disputes. And so I, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of talking about municipal autonomy while still acknowledging that uh, white colonialists are not the first uh, stewards of this land. For sure. Yeah, and I think um, with this conversation, there's probably more more questions than answers that I that I have with it and um, you know one of the things I think about is first I think land claims and, and self-government agreements should be settled before we get to that conversation about constitutional recognition of municipalities because mm-hmm. I feel there may be resources being drawn away from settling those land claims and self-government agreements and focused then on on municipalities getting their constitutional rights which you know I think we have to stop and and recognize that resources aren't infinite. And then 
it also, like, if municipal governments are recognized in the Constitution, does this mean now that for self-governments and, and land claims that municipalities would have a seat at the table? And are we moving from the tripart to a four-party negotiation? Because, you know, right now when it comes to land claims and, and self-government agreements, the federal and provincial governments are at the table because discussions can can occur in jurisdiction of either of those. So if municipal governments are recognized, then self-government agreements can involve zoning bylaws. So having four parties at the table, does that slow down the process? And again, I think that that bigger question of resolving self-governments and land claim agreements before getting into this this next step of the constitution, I think is important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for municipal municipalities, it would be a good push to encourage the provincial and federal government to make that a priority to settle these land claims and self-government agreements so that we can get on to the the next step of the constitutional rights of municipalities. Because I also think that, you know, what we're trying to achieve with being recognized in the constitution, there there's other legislative reforms that could be done at the provincial or territorial level. So without pulling the the federal resources away from Indigenous nations. Yeah, so I was thinking like, you know, there's been discussions about the provincial and legislative reforms. And I know right now it's just so easy to make changes to municipal legislation at the provincial level so and territorial level. So, you know, if, if it's a requirement that it needs two-thirds votes or it needs the agreement from municipalities or it needs a, a referendum we may be able to achieve the same thing that we're we're trying to achieve with getting municipalities recognized in the constitution. Yeah, I had more questions, but I think uh, that's kind of the best way to to give final word. Um, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. No problem. Thank you. Greater local autonomy for cities can empower those governments to help the urban indigenous population thrive and answer the calls to action set out by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Whether that means better funding and the discretion to spend it, the ability to establish a human rights committee, or to reinvent ways to address matters of public safety. Still, as Mayor Alti says, discussions about cities' autonomy should not supersede those of indigenous sovereignty. Perhaps, though, There is opportunity to make common cause between the need for greater local power and the need to address the legacy of colonial violence and oppression Canada, at every level of government, must take responsibility for. Until next time, I'm Glenn Bowerman. Thanks to our guests, Mayors Brian Bowman, Charlie Clark, and Rebecca Alti. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music. City Insight is made in partnership with Spacing Magazine and Massey College. Executive producers are Alan Kaspersky and Matthew Blackett. Creative consultant is Darren Chow. This podcast was made possible by Massey College, the Maytree Foundation, and the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. For more on our constitutional city crisis, the Massey City Summit will take place April 6th, 7th, and 8th, 2021.
Check out MasseyCitySummit.ca for updates about speakers and registration.